if I were to ask each of you uh, in here, how do you define the word Christian? I'd probably get at least like 30, 40 different definitions, right? If some random person walked up to you on the street, uh, you're just like walking along, uh, and this person walks up to you and asks you, hey, are you a Christian? I guarantee you, the first thing that would come to your mind, you'd be like, oh, snap, like, why is he asking this? Am I about to get shot right now? The second thing that would probably come to your mind would be like, what do you mean by Christian? Do you mean I go to church? Do you mean I'm a religious person? Do you mean I vote Republican? Um, Do you mean, like, I'm a Christ follower? All of those things, like you have certain ideas of what a Christian is. And I want to just know what you mean by Christian, right? And when you answer that person, you're probably going to nuance that answer quite a bit. You'll be like, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't do X or say Y or believe so and so. I'm not one of those kinds of Christians, right? And the reason you'd have to do this is because our culture and our society has defined Christians in a very specific way. Our society sees Christians as self-righteous, judgmental, homophobic, racist people. That's the way a lot of society, a lot of the world that we live in, sees Christians, right? Like, you only have to go to, to a class in college to sort of get that feel, right? Christians have gotten a really bad rap, right? And to be honest, the last few months haven't really helped much, right? And my point sort of of all of this is that the word Christian has really gotten a negative sort of connotation uh, over the years. But here's what we see. We see that this idea that the word Christian is sort of like a ugh sort of thing, that's nothing new. Like that, That's been the attitude throughout the last 2,000 plus years regarding Christians. Actually, the way the word Christian came about was that Christian was a way to diss people who were Christ followers, right? In fact, the word Christian only appears three times in the Bible, and the first time it appears, it's a derogatory word, sort of like, I probably shouldn't say any, but it's a derogatory word, right? Uh, Those outside of the church used it to call this group of people. Those inside of the church never called themselves that. You guys want to see where that word came from? Go ahead and open up to Acts uh, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So um, sort of here's the story. Um, you see this church leader named Stephen. Um, uh, this is how the story begins. You, you have this church leader named Stephen, and he gets stoned. Um, that's how all good stories begin, right? Just kidding. Um, that's not true. Uh, that's how all bad stories begin. Okay, so, um, so it's just low-hanging fruit, right? Okay, um, so Stephen, he gets stoned, and all of the other Christians, all the other uh, people who are a part of the church, uh, see what happens to Stephen, and they're like, oh, no. Like, if that happened to Stephen, like, that can happen to us. So all of them flee out of Jerusalem. They all get out of the city. Uh, they move to different cities. One city that a lot of them move to is a city called Antioch, just a little bit north uh, of Jerusalem. And um, the church in Antioch really starts to grow. So the leaders in Jerusalem are like, hey, like, these people are a new church. Like, we have a lot of new Christians, a lot of new uh, believers. So we need to send some people to train them. So they send 
um, the heavy hitters, right? They send Paul and they send Barnabas. So they're up there uh, training uh, these, these believers, and it's at that point that they start getting called Christians. Uh, look at verse um, 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, a.k.a. Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, a.k.a. Paul, met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So I sort of want you just to, to see the end of that, right? The end of the story, the ones who were known as disciples, followers of the way, now get labeled as Christians. Right? And we know from history that they weren't very liked in this town. Uh, especially the people from Jerusalem actually came to persecute these people that they called Christians. Right? But there's more of this in, in secular history, of this label, this negative label being put upon people called Christians. Right? So there's this Roman historian uh, named Tacitus. You all remember Tacitus, right? Just, just nod your head. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, Tacitus. Um, just pretend you remember, okay? Because uh, it'll make you look a lot smarter for the cute guy or girl sitting next to you, right? <laughs> Tacitus. Um, so Tacitus basically is the, the historian that tells us uh, what Nero's motivation was in burning down Rome, right? Nero, basically, he just wanted to, like, remodel the city, so he decided, I'm going to, like, burn this part of the city down, um, which you can imagine if you live there. It's like, what? Like, that remodeling job really just sucks for me, right? Um, so apparently people in the city didn't like having their house burned down. Uh, so Nero has to come up with this plan uh, to not look like a bad guy. So what does he do? He blames this group of people called Christians, right? And let's see what Tacitus has to say. Tacitus says, um, <clears throat> Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. So the the tortures that he inflicted, he uh, had them uh, burned alive to serve as like human torches in his gardens. He had them wrapped up in uh, the flesh of animals uh, and then had dogs like let out and to eat them, sort of like bacon-wrapped hot dogs, but like human version. Um... Really bad, right? Um, so let's keep reading. He called uh, Christians. Christus, uh, spelled Jesus Christ's name wrong, uh, not, not, not the person who, who wrote this, Tacitus. Um, so Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. That's his Latin name. Uh, and the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center, that's the British spelling of center, uh, it's not misspelled, and become popular. So he's saying that this hated, this mischievous, this superstitious, hideous, shameful class of people were called Christians. I, I, I think you're starting to get the picture, like, this word uh, has really negative connotations. And this word was how others define Christ's followers. It's not how they define themselves. The word that they actually use to define themselves is 
a lot more scary than that. And it's a word that when you actually think about the implications and you think about what that word actually means, it's a frightening word because it has the power to actually unravel all of your life and to really just flip it upside down. And that word is disciple. Right? How did Christians define themselves? They define themselves as disciples. So what is a Christian? According to the Bible, a Christian is a disciple. We're going to unpack that. But first, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, um, we know that a lot of people in this world, maybe even some people uh, in this room, have uh, really bad experiences uh, with this group of people called Christians. We know that a lot of people have been hurt. Uh, A lot of people um, have just felt the pain of judgment and self-righteousness and hypocritical attitudes. Lord, um, but that's not what a Christian actually looks like. Lord, you give us a definition of a Christian. You tell us what that is. Lord, and that word People who are disciples can just bring so much love and joy into this world. Lord, so I just pray that tonight, as we look into what it means to be a disciple, that that perception would change, that our desire to change people's perceptions would grow. Lord, but more importantly, I pray that our desire to be real disciples of Jesus, we're willing to do whatever he calls us to, that that would grow within us too, Lord. So just speak through your word. Let us have uh, just ears and hearts that are open to whatever you have to say. Place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, I've been called a lot of things in my life. Um, manly, hot, smart, all that sort of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> mostly by my wife. Um, uh, real talk, though, uh, I've been called some bad things uh, in my life, and I remember one specifically that's... Uh, it's really painful. Um, it, uh, it happened just like right after one of the most joyous days uh, of my life. And uh, it, it happened at um, the hands of somebody that I really like trusted and really cared for. And I thought they like cared for me. <clears throat> but this person, uh, they called me a, a bandwagon fan. They called me a bandwagon fan, all right? Right, Broncos had just won the Super Bowl, right? And this person said that I was a bandwagon Broncos fan. I'm like, uh, 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 no, sir. Right? Like I have been a fan since the '96, '97 season. Right? When I first started playing flag football, when I was playing flag football, I would pretend to be Terrell Davis, who you all don't know because you're not actual Broncos fans, probably. I had a Rod Smith jersey uh that when i bought it it was like down down to here right because i was like a, a little 12 year old and um and now it's like down to here because i'm a, a little 28 year old um i had a beanie baby signed by john elway supposedly i mean that's what happens when you let 13 year olds buy stuff on ebay um right like i was there with the broncos thick and thin Right? In all those seasons that they lost, I was there sitting on my couch. Right? When they got blown out by the Seahawks, 
I was just a wreck. And I had to come back and preach at Soma right after that. Do you know how that feels? I, was, I had, like, my speech ready to go and everything. Um, luckily, they, they just won it last year, um, which was great. But the fact was, like, even when stuff wasn't easy, I stuck with them, no matter what. I just, like, bandwagon. Yeah, like, yeah, right, I'm not a bandwagon fan. Um, <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you guys think? What makes someone a bandwagon fan versus someone who's actually a real fan? Anybody? How long they've been a fan, all right. How devoted, that's a good word, devoted. Loyalty through thick and thin. From a Giants fan. Loyalty through thick and thin. Anything else? Anything else? Yeah, I think those are great words. I have no idea what you said. Like, murmur. All right. um, Devoted. Loyal through thick and thin. Something said over here. Um, The same distinction sort of comes out in the Bible, too. Right? Like, in the Bible, there are, like, bandwagon fans. Right? In other words, there are just cultural Christians, right? People who just take that name on, but aren't actually devoted. They're not staying through thick and thin, right? And then there are real fans, people who are disciples of Jesus. A real fan, as I said, uh, is willing to stick, real fan, a real follower is willing to stick uh, with Jesus uh, when faith gets hard, Right? Like, real fans, you think about, like, the hardcore fans, like, they travel with the team no matter where the team is going for road games, right? Disciples, they want to go wherever Jesus goes. Fans, real fans, they, like, wear all, like, the merch, whether it's a band merch or the team merch or whatever, right? Because they want people to see them and know, like, oh, like, I am a real fan of this team. Same thing with people who are disciples, Right? They want to look like Jesus because they want people to see how much they love him and how awesome he is. Right? A, a real disciple is not a bandwagon Christian. Bandwagon Christians give up really quick. Right? And one of the most just like honest but also terrifying questions you can ask yourself is, am I, in this season of my life, a bandwagon Christian? Am I a disciple? Right? Because the truth is, though, like, all of us go through seasons where sometimes we're kind of more in, like, the bandwagon stage. And, like, the reality is, like, that's fine. Like, that happens. You think about Peter's life. Like, he had his ups and downs. Like, Peter straight up denied Jesus. He was scared by this little uh, junior high girl into saying, hey, like, I don't know Jesus. You know, if a little junior high girl can keep you from following Jesus, that's a, a season of being a bandwagon fan. But the reality is, if you look at Peter's life, he has this trajectory where he is actually devoted. So that question isn't meant to, like, induce guilt, but it's meant to, like, check yourself, right? Because you might be in a not-so-good season, but the overall trajectory of your life is moving in the right direction, right? So the whole thing, disciple, bandwagon fan, all that sort of stuff, sort of begs the question, what actually is a disciple? Like, just a secular definition, a disciple is someone who shares the same mind, has the same attitude, someone who wants to be exactly like someone else, right? And a Christian disciple is someone who strives to be just like Jesus. It's going to be up on the screen. A disciple is someone who wants to be like Jesus. You know, like, 
wear sandals, have a beard, all that sort of stuff, just like Jesus. Um, <clears throat> no, re- really, though. Um, let's take a look uh, at our Bibles and see what it means to be like Jesus. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, um, you already opened them up to Acts 11. Uh, flip on over a whole bunch of pages, but not too many, uh, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And um, when you're there, can I get a loud word? Awesome. A lot of you are there. Um, we'll, uh, we'll wait. I'm, I'm going to keep going, but you'll find it. Uh, so Paul is uh, writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And um, basically this church is doing really good. It's like one of the actual letters where the church is doing really well. So he writes to just encourage them how to do community even better. Right? So right here, we get a glimpse into Paul, uh, Paul's conversation with this church, right? Like, it's a private conversation. He's having it with them, and we sort of get to, like, eavesdrop in on it, um, which sort of leads me to say something really quick. Um, <clears throat> just like this letter was actually written to Christians uh, to help them live like Christ, what I'm about to say doesn't really apply to you uh, if you're not a Christ follower. All right, think of this, like, the rest of this sermon, sort of like a family conversation, right? This is for people who are a part of the family. You know, like, um, have you ever, like, gone to a friend's house, and you're just, when you were little, and you're just, like, playing, doing whatever you do as a little kid at a friend's house, uh, and their parents just start fighting in the other room? And he's like, Susie, you always burn the toast. And she's like, Greg, like, don't even get me started. Like, you never put the toilet seat down. You never lift a finger in this house. And you're kind of just like, just like yelling and banging, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what is going on in there? And you're just like playing with your friend, and you're like, okay, I think I'm going to go now. Um, and, and just like from the other room, you hear, no, you stay put. You're playing with Johnny, all right? Like, you're stuck there. You're not going anywhere. Um, it's sort of like that, except we're not, like, fighting here. Um, we're taking care of some family business, right? But there's no need to make it awkward. Uh, it's not awkward that you're in on this family conversation. Um, why? Because the fact is, um, what I'm about to say is not an expectation that I have upon you or we have upon you. Right? Like, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're exploring faith, um, you can just come here and just listen in on this family conversation, right? Because you can belong before you believe here. And when you do believe, there's going to be some calls that are made upon your life. But until then, just like feel free to just listen in, all right? So let's go ahead and read. Philippians uh, 2, starting at verse 5. So here's what he says. This is Paul. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Um, there's a Bible scholar. His name is Michael Gorman. Uh, and he says that what's about to come in this chapter is Paul's master story. Right? It's, it's this controlling narrative. In other words, what we're about to read is the story that Paul sees himself living out. Right? In some sense, uh, he's imitating it. In some sense, he's reflecting it. He's embodying this sort of story. And Paul says that this story... It's not just a story that I live in my own life, right? This story 
is a story that the church, Christ followers, are called to imitate and reflect. Michael Gorman says, Philippians 2, 6 to 11 is a missional Christology for a missional people. That's basically just a really fancy way of saying that Paul wants Christians to be like Jesus, to embrace and proclaim and embody the story of Jesus for the sake of the world. Right? Uh, and what is that story? Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 6. <clears throat> Who, talking about Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even on a cross. You see, in Jesus' day, um, there was this, this clear storyline the greatest kings and emperors adopted. People like Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus. Uh, basically, they chased after greatness. They chased after their own glory. Right? Their own accomplishments sort of made them think that in their own mind, they deserved to be called like gods. Right? The kings wanted to be like gods. They even had temples built to them. They expected offerings and sacrifices and people to worship them. And if they didn't, there'd be consequences. Right? These kings, these huge, larger-than-life kings, grasped at this title, God. Right? They wanted to be just like the gods. And then comes Jesus, right? who actually is God. Right? God in the flesh, eternal, pre-existed, uh, uncreated, fully God, fully man. And what does he do? He doesn't just grasp at the title God. He doesn't do that. That's what the world was doing. Right? He doesn't grasp at all the benefits that were owed to him. Right? The devotion, the, the worship, the comfort, all of that that you would expect when a God comes to live among men. Right? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus actually does the opposite of that. Right? He takes on frail and weak human nature, and he willingly goes to die on a cross. He comes not to be served, but to serve. When all the kings around him were saying, you need to serve me, this king came to serve. Right? He flips upside down what it means to be God. Uh, N.T. Wright, another Bible scholar, he says this. He says, as you look at the incarnate son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. <coughs> this is the true meaning of who God is. He's a God of self giving love. We see who God really is when Jesus is on the cross. Right? Why does he do that? Why does he go there? It's because Paul, uh, Jesus knows our condition. Right? This is Jesus' heart. Jesus knows where we're at. Right? The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. You see, Jesus, he, he looked down upon us and saw us in our miserable, broken state. He saw us wallowing in our own sin and the consequences of it. Right? Just think about that for a second, the consequences of your sin. Right? That guilt that comes when you sin. Right? That shame that floods your heart. Those relationships that you've destroyed. That trust that's been lost. Right? That disappointment 
that you've created in the eyes of the people that you love. Right? Those nights where you just like lay in bed and wonder, who the heck am I? How could I have done those things? Like that, I don't even know myself. Right? And that's just talking about yourself. That's not even about the consequences of other people's sin in your own life. Right? Jesus sees all of this. He knows where we're at. He knows it's a messed up world, just tainted by sin. What does Jesus do? He gives up every single privilege and right that he had, right? And he's God. So he has a lot of privileges and rights. And he gave all those up to come and serve us. He gave it all up for us, for you, for me. And that's the God that we worship. And Paul is saying, like, look, look at this story. Look at this Jesus and what he did. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you ought to have that same attitude. That's straight up what Paul just said. You ought to have the same attitude, the same mind as Christ. Right? Just like Jesus put his interests, not his interests, put our interests, other people's interests, above his own and was willing to let go of his privileges and his rights, Christ followers also ought to be willing to let go of their privileges and their rights for others. Why do you do that? Because you're a disciple. A disciple does what his master does. A disciple thinks like his master thinks. A disciple wants to be just like his master. And our master is a person who's known for serving others. Here's the other point. A disciple is a servant of all. A disciple is a servant of all. You know, I really wonder um, if when the world thinks about Christians, if, if this comes to mind. Right? Actually, I don't wonder. Like, I've read enough blogs and, and newspaper articles this election cycle to see that that's not the way the world sees Christians anymore. Right? <clears throat> and I wonder if the world's perception uh, of Christians would change if we were actually known for being servants. If we were known for people who really had society's best interests in mind. Instead of being known as people who hold on to power, what if we took this call to be disciples like Jesus seriously? What if we took the call to serve our communities? And not just on days like All Serve, but every month. Right? Maybe even every week, find a way to serve the place where you're living in. Right? Or if your coworker knew that when, you were, when they were in a bind, they could turn to you for help. Not because you're just a nice person, right? but because you're actually a Christian. Right? What if people knew that when they came to church for the first time, they, they wouldn't be expected to just figure all these Christian things out? Right? But there would be people serving them there. There would be someone at the door just with a warm welcome for them. That when they came in, that they'd have a seat, that they'd have someone to sit next to, that they'd be offered a warm cup of bomb tea from Hojin. Right? Or that when they go to Starbucks, they're not going to have to feel awkward because they have someone there that they know that's going to talk to them and making sure they're not just chilling by themselves on that hard concrete table. Right? It's an easy way to serve people, even here at church, even if you're not on a service team. And don't even, like, get me started on how to serve by being on a service team, right? 
Um, it's like too easy. I won't even go there. But join a service team. Um, <clears throat> right? The world's perception of Christians would actually change. You know, a, a few years ago, McDonald's went through this sort of, um, uh, basically McDonald's realized that they were really bad. Like, surprise, <laughs> surprise, right? Um, uh, what did they do? They, like, went through this rebranding scheme, right? They started advertising how, like, they cooked the food, um, not just, like, put it in the microwave. They, like, actually cook it there. Uh, they started offering smoothies and salads and, like, little apple things uh, for kids instead of eating fries. Um, they started saying how, like, they have 100% chicken, chicken nuggets. Um, think about that for a second. Um, and guess what? All of you still think McDonald's is junk, right? It may be good, it might taste good, but it is junk, straight up. The reality is perception, someone's stomach already hurts, even thinking about it. Is that what you said? Uh, the, the reality is perception is really hard to change, and McDonald's knows that, right? But the truth is, having the world perception of Christians change, that's going to be really hard too. It requires our sacrifice. It requires our money, our time, our efforts, maybe even your safety. You know, I think of uh, just a few years ago uh, when the Ebola crisis was happening in Liberia, and we actually had a pastor come um, from there during that time. Uh, he was not infected, so don't worry. Um, but I think of just the, the missionary doctors who served there during that Ebola crisis, how they were just willing to literally lay down their right to life in order to show these people God's love, right? And that, that's something that's not just like a one-off thing. Like, that's been the history of the church, right? For example, in the 1500s in Geneva, uh, there was um, the plague, which was like rampant throughout the city. So what they would do is they would take people who were infected by the plague, and they would put them outside of the city. That way they wouldn't infect anyone. And then the pastors of Geneva, they realized, like, these people out here, like, they need pastoral care. Like, how can you call yourself a pastor when your sheep are literally out there dying? And they don't have encouragement, and they're by themselves. And here's what John Calvin, one, uh, one of the, the, the pastors in that city said. He said, so long as we're in this ministry, I do not see any pretext, excuse, uh, will avail us. If through the fear of infection, we're found wanting in the discharge of our duty when there is the most need of our assistance. So basically, there's no excuse. Like, if we're going to call ourselves pastors, like, there's no excuse. We have to be willing to serve people. So what did they do? These pastors literally gave up their rights, their privileges to go and serve those people. And some of them, some of them actually died doing that. They took the call to serve seriously. And for us, though, like, it's not always going to be, not always, it's probably not going to be in some, like, huge way like that, right? But it's going to require giving up time. It's going to require giving up resources. It might mean taking someone in to sleep on your couch for a whole month, right? It might involve uh, giving somebody 100 bucks to pay for groceries because they're having a hard time this month. It may require all sorts of stuff. But the fact is, it requires sacrifice. Right? But that's not the hardest part about being a servant. The fact is that just like our master serving others 
will get you crucified sometimes. Serving others will get you crucified sometimes. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when you serve others, when you look out for the interests of other people, a lot of times it's going to be the unpopular thing to do. People are not going to like that. It's sort of surprising. You wouldn't think that, right? Um, For example, uh, Martin Luther King, I'm sure everybody knows Martin Luther King, right? Like he said that the church was the conscience of society. Church was the conscience of society, right? Meaning that when society is doing something wrong, it's headed in the wrong direction, it's hurting people, right? The church has to do the loving thing and speak truth to power, right? Even if it's the unpopular thing to do. Like if the church's voice, the fact is the church's voice on certain things will piss certain groups off, guaranteed, right? Like if the church were to take the interests of society seriously, it would speak against taking the lives of helpless people, like the unborn, right? It would speak out against the harmful sexual ethics of this world, not necessarily telling them, hey, you got to be like us, but saying, hey, that's going to lead to your destruction in this moment now, because you're not being what you're meant to be, right? On the other hand, like, and that's definitely going to piss certain people off, right? Like, on the other hand, the church has to serve society and stand along those who've been hurt by racial injustice. It has to speak up for people who've been hurt by cycles, this endless cycle of poverty that they can't get out of. And that's going to piss another group of people off. You sort of see, like, being a servant of society, you're going to get it from both sides. Right? People are going to get mad. But really, who cares? Who cares if people get mad? Because you're not a servant in order that people would like you. Like, you're a servant because you want to do what's best for this society that God has placed you in. You're a servant because you love the people around you. Not because they have anything to offer to you. You're a servant because God has placed you here. And you love the place where you're at. Right? Okay, so I've said a lot, like serving, um, I've sort of been all over the place. Um, but the fact is, serving is actually really hard. Like, we can have all these, like, theoretical ideas of how awesome it is to serve and be a servant. And we've got to be, like, servants to the whole world, to our neighbors, our coworkers, society, people out there, right? But if you're like me, being a servant is not easy. Like, like it's really hard. Like, you can desire to have that but not do it. Like, that happens to me with my wife all the time. Like, I know I should serve her, but it's harder than, than, than I think. Um, like, the other day, like, I'm just really bad at serving. The other day, um, I bought this uh, homeless guy some lunch. Um, and that's not, like, not, like, humble bragging. I bought this, this is a bad story about myself. I bought uh, this, home, this homeless guy some lunch, um, and we're, like, chilling there. And um, he straight up asked me, he's like, hey, are you going to Target today? And I'm like, that's a weird question. Like, is he going to ask me for a ride? I'm like, I've given rides to strangers sometimes, but I don't know about this time. Um, so he's like, hey, are you going to Target today? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. And he's like, oh, well, um, while I sit here and finish my lunch, like, would you mind going to Target for me and buying me a gift card? And I was like, for real? Like, <laughs> like, you want to just stay here. Like, at the very least, you could have been like, oh, like, can we go to Target together? 
It's like, no, like, I'm going to stay here, enjoy my lunch, and you go run errands for me. And in, my, in that moment, like, I look back at it, and I was like, man, like, that was an opportunity to serve that guy. But I w- did not want to do that because be- being a servant is actually really hard. Um, it's, it doesn't come easy, right? And it doesn't come easy for any of us, right? But that's the call that we have on our life, to, to be a disciple, to be a servant, because uh, we know it's going to make a huge difference, but it feels like a yoke sometimes. I mean, just the title, disciple or service, uh, that can feel like a heavy burden. Um, but there's good news in all of this. Right? Like, if you want to be a servant, Paul tells us the power to be a servant actually comes um, from something very specific. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, If you have any encouragement... This is where the encouragement to serve comes from. From being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, then go on and do these things. Right? Like he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, from knowing that Jesus loves you, from having his Holy Spirit in you, dwelling in you, empowering you, then you can serve. That's where the power to serve comes from. Uh, that's your last fill-in. The power and the encouragement to serve actually comes from knowing that you're united to Christ, that he loves you, and that you have his Holy Spirit. All right, so if you are going to be a disciple, right, and, and the true meaning of the word Christian, a disciple, not just some bandwagon fan, if you want to change the perception of the word Christian, you can only do that by knowing that you're united to Christ, that Jesus loves you, right, and that you have his Holy Spirit in you. Because that's where the power to be a servant disciple comes from. There's one last thing that Paul says we need to know in order to carry this out. Verse 9. He says, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you're going to be a servant, you need to know that Jesus is going to be exalted one day, that every knee is going to bow down to worship him. This means that every act of service you commit in the name of Jesus is never going to go to waste. From, from the smallest, most vain little act of service to the most amazing, grand, spectacular thing you can do, none of that is going to go to waste. Serving in cafe, taking pictures, right, doing tech, loving uh, your coworker speaking truth to this world, none of those things will go in vain because all of those things contribute to Jesus getting the glory that he deserves. And again, like I'm speaking to Christians in here, people who are Christ followers, people who are disciples. If the glory of God doesn't motivate you to serve, I don't know what will. If knowing that being united to Christ that he loves you, that you have his spirit, if that stuff doesn't motivate you to serve, then I don't, like, have anything else to say. Like, I can't put any, give any words better than Paul, right? But 
if those things do, if those things do motivate you, then I would invite you to join this movement that we're a part of, to serve this world that God has placed us in, right? To come alongside of your brothers and sisters and just serve this world like you haven't before. I'd invite you to do that because when the church actually gets that done, the world's perception of Christians is going to change. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I pray that you would just give us the same heart as Jesus. God, that you would give us the same desires as him uh, to serve the context that you've placed us in. God, I pray that as we serve, that your name would just be glorified, that people would know you for who you really are and that people would fall in love with you. Jesus, I pray that as we serve, it's just in the multiple ways that you, you're calling us to do. Like some of us, that means joining a ministry here. That might mean joining a ministry in one of the other ministries in this church, like junior high or high school or first impressions. Or that might mean uh, joining some other organization um, or service opportunity outside of this church. Whatever it is, God, I pray that in this time that you would begin to lay callings, that you begin to lay desires in our hearts to serve you so that the world may know what Christians really are. We pray this in Jesus' name.